Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Amos chapter 5. Uh, this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation, and we in the Minor Prophets and uh, in the midst of the study of this book of uh, Amos. I do want to uh, just mention uh, to you, um, I don't know uh, if you ever thought in your whole life that you would be in a church studying Amos at some particular point in time. And uh, you might uh, feel kind of weird about even being there tonight to tell anybody saying, where are you going? Well, I'm going to church. And well, what's being studied there? Well, we're, we're currently studying Amos. And uh, I remember when I uh, walked into Calvary Chapel of Napa so many years ago, now decades ago, and when I walked in, it was an evening service, and I sat down and the uh, pastor was uh, teaching the Bible. He would read the Bible he would uh, then explain what he had read, and then he would apply it to our lives. And um, it was like this massive light went on for me. Uh, when I walked away from there, and I realized, I am learning the Bible. I know what that passage in the Bible uh, means, and, and what that meant to me. And for us to just realize, especially those of you who are newer to this kind of a thing, uh, going through an entire book of the Bible or the whole Bible itself. God intends that we would know the entire Bible and not just these little snippets uh, of it, and, but to know it in its entirety. So as you read this, and sometimes you, we can go through this and say, you know, I got a, one or two things out of it, but I don't really have the foggiest idea what he was talking about in terms of Israel or us or anything like that. That's fine. Uh, the Word of God does not return void. It will always do its work. And the next time, you'll understand a little bit more until all those pieces are put together. So be patient with yourself. Be patient with the work that God does uh, through His Word. But it is always being done as we study His Word. In chapter uh, 5 and 6 is what we'll look at this evening. And uh, it, it, the book of Amos, as we've already seen at the beginning of the first two chapters, a series of eight burdens that Amos spoke against the uh, northern kingdom of Israel and the surrounding nations, uh, eight condemnations of them for their sin. And then here in uh, chapters uh, uh, four through six, we have three calls to hear. The Lord calls on as He focuses entirely on the northern kingdom of Israel and says, you need to listen to what it is that I'm saying. A call to hear His um, indictment of their sin, but also His call to repent of that sin and to be restored to Him. And then next week, as we'll finish up the book, God willing, there's five visions that the Lord gives concerning uh, judgment that would come upon uh, the northern kingdom of uh, Israel. And so uh, here we have this uh, uh, denunciation of Israel's sin that goes on in this final third of the three uh, calls to hear the Lord and heed His warning as we come to chapter 5. Hear this word. Uh, which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. Now, lamentation is a, uh, it's a funeral dirge, as it's used so often in, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, so here is the Lord who is uh, taking up a lamentation against the house of Israel. Uh, uh, they are dying. 
they are going to die, uh, not that they w- won't be, uh, wouldn't be ultimately restored, but this generation would face God's judgment. And uh, so, in essence, he's, uh, this lamentation is, is kind of putting an obituary into the newspaper concerning the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, I'm, uh, I, I take up against you a lamentation, O house of Israel. I am going to uh, 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 write a, an obituary uh, lamenting your death for uh, the newspaper, or for the whole world, so to speak. And then he gives the uh, description of, uh, of her death in verse 2. The virgin of Israel has fallen. And this word fallen as it's used uh, most often in the ancient world and even in, in the Bible, it speaks of fallen by the sword. They're going to be uh, judged by God by means of the Assyrians. When he talks about the virgin of Israel there, he's talking about uh, a virgin in that in that age was uh, someone who was in the prime of life, um, young enough and not yet married, and, and uh, so all of life ahead of you filled with so much promise. And, uh, and so for someone to die at that point in their life would be a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's the kind of thing we look at and we would say they had their whole life in front of them and God is speaking about the extraordinary tragedy that this uh, death of the northern kingdom of Israel will be because of their unwillingness to give uh, up their sin. And so the virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. It does not mean that uh, God was, uh, had given up on the Jews, that He had nothing that he would, nothing to, would have nothing to do with the Jews uh, in the future. He's talking about uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and uh, in her current form, she will rise up no more. When the Jews came back into the land, uh, even following their Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, the land was no longer divided into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah, and nor is it today. And, uh, and so uh, what she was before that judgment, she will uh, never recover from. Uh, she lies forsaken in her land. There was no one to raise her up. Well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? Someone dies in the prime of life. The obituary is written, the description of the death, and uh, this person dies uh, so friendless, uh, so without an ally, so without family and resources that there isn't even anyone that can uh, take and bury her Uh, following her death. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. So a 90% loss of life, speaking of the coming uh, catastrophic invasion of the Babylonians and judgment for their sin, uh, only 10% surviving. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. And so uh, we talk about today, people will talk about an army going out and uh, finding themselves being badly beaten in battle, and they will describe them as being decimated. And very often people will say the army was decimated, meaning they, uh, they uh, uh, had a, a 10% loss of their military force. 
the word can be decimated, can be used for a, a, also for a kind of a, complete, a, a destruction uh, of something. But here you have something that goes uh, way beyond decimated. It isn't 10% destroyed, 90% destroyed, only 10% surviving. Well, no nation and no military can withstand a 90% loss of its population or of its force and, and have any hope of surviving. And yet that is uh, exactly uh, what, what would happen. And then the Lord in the midst of speaking about where she was headed, He's always looking for a happy ending in, in people's lives, in our individual lives, in the nation of Israel. And, and it's the way that He is. For thus says the Lord uh, to the house of Israel, even as far as they were uh, uh, down into the depths of sin, He still throws them this, this offer of life. Seek Me and live. Well, they were seeking all of their false gods, and there was no life to, in the gods, so the gods could, their idols could offer them no life. So He says, seek Me and live. The only thing that can pull, uh, pull this obituary, keep it from being added to the newspaper of human history concerning the northern kingdom of Israel would be repentance on, uh, uh, on their part. And so he calls out to them that they would repent. And this is the purpose of his chastening within our lives. When God chastens us as his people, and these were his people, however far from God they were living at the time, uh, it is always to bring us to repentance and that we would turn back to God. The idea isn't to destroy us. Uh, he would have to deal with them in a very, very heavy measure to get them to take Him seriously uh, about His holiness and about His commandments. They're the ones that raised the stakes up so high in, in terms of where God had to go in His chastening with them. But in any of our lives, if we're backslidden from the Lord, we're far from the Lord, uh, repentance can occur in a moment where I say, you're right. I, I, what am I doing as a child of God? What am I doing in this thing that I'm dabbling with, or this relationship or the life that I'm living? I repent. I turn back to you. And then the chastening will have done its work. And God can then remove the chastening uh, from our lives. That's all that He wanted uh, from them. But it is a significant thing to give God repentance. And uh, it's a weighty thing. And so he, uh, if it's given to Him, then, then He will uh, move back on His chastening. But He said, do not uh, seek Bethel nor enter Gilgal. And both of these uh, cities were, Bethel was one of the headquarters of the golden calf worship that marked the northern kingdom of Israel. Gilgal was um, uh, also a center for, uh, for idolatry as well. Nor paths over to uh, Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Gilgal was the place where the children of Israel uh, crossed the Jordan River and entered into the Promised Land under Joshua and then move from that place then to begin the conquest of that land by going to uh, uh, Jericho. And, uh, and they set up the tabernacle there and they made that their uh, staging uh, uh, area for the conquest of the land. And so uh, here they are, they've destroyed their godly history. 
They've taken Gilgal, which was gold in the minds uh, of the Jewish people and in Jewish history. Uh, this sacred site where God did this great thing of bringing them into the land, fulfilling this promise, and now they tarnish it by making it a center for uh, idolatry. And God says, you have, you have marred, you have frittered away, you have destroyed uh, what generations of your people prior to you uh, built in terms of, of godliness, in terms of a godly legacy of this nation, you are throwing it away in one generation and, uh, and, uh, and not building on it, but, but uh, living life in such a way that you're destroying uh, every good memory of, of uh, when more godly people and more godly uh, uh, saints uh, were in control of, uh, of the land and walking with God. And that can happen very, very quickly in a country, and they had done it. And again, God repeats His invitation, seek the Lord and live. Not these other gods, but seek Me. That's the only place that life uh, can be found uh, here in your condition, lest He break out like fire, uh, speaking of the Assyrian invasion in the house of Joseph, speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel, and devour it with no one to quench that, that uh, fire, that invasion in Bethel, uh, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. And so uh, God here speaks about the condition of the land, a couple of things that troubled him and, and was a cause for the judgment. They turned justice into wormwood. Uh, wormwood in the, the Bible, it is a, uh, some, it is a, a plant, it's a, a, a wood, and it is a very, very bitter and so in the Bible, it speaks of something that is bitter. So they had turned justice into something that was bitter for the people. In, in, in other words, their, their court system. There was no longer justice that could be uh, gained in their court system. Uh, the rich and the powerful had taken it over. Uh, they had corrupted it. They were using it to get away with uh, murder, so to speak, in their own lives and to rip the poor off and, and this kind of thing. You've turned justice into wormwood, and God noticed it. You've made it uh, bitter in the land and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. When you lay something to rest in the earth, uh, what's that an indication of? You've killed it. You've killed it. You have killed righteousness in the land. With the life that you're living, the way that you're living, uh, uh, there is, you, you can't find righteousness anymore in the land. Well, we, even we as a nation are uh, not even nearly approaching that, that kind of a thing. You can still find righteousness in, in the land. And uh, not every state is California. And, uh, and uh, not every person in California is like every other person. So righteousness is, is still there. It's under threat to be sure. Uh, what is right and what is wrong in God's eyes. But they had uh, murdered it and they had laid it to rest. You couldn't find righteousness uh, virtually anywhere. And then God lets them know uh, who they're up against in, in terms of uh, picking a fight. Uh, with uh, 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 with him, 
And that's who they were picking a fight with. And so he lets them know, uh, you, uh, you want to fight with me? Then uh, let me tell you my credentials and you might want to rethink it. But they won't rethink it. As someone has said, is that when God is your problem, uh, only God is your solution. And so God is letting them know, I am your problem presently and uh, you have no hope of winning this battle against me, nor does anybody. And it's actually a work of God's grace. I've never ever won a war with God. I've never even won an argument with God. Uh, he always wins, but it's always to our benefit when he, when he does that. He made the Pleiades and Orion, speaking of these heavenly bodies. He turns the shadow of death uh, into morning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is His name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes uh, upon the fortress. And so he talks about the fact that He is the Creator. He is the controller of everything. Uh, if you, in, Nobody in their right mind would pick a fight with God, uh, let alone someone who claims to know God. And yet that's what they were, uh, they were doing, and God declared that uh, in doing so, He'll rain ruin upon even the strong, and fury will come upon the fortresses. Even the strongest places in, in the northern kingdom of Israel would be overthrown. And then in uh, verse 10 through verse 17, in this whole kind of a, uh, an image of a, a person dying, and then you have the obituary, then you have kind of the autopsy, why did they die, the assessment of the death, and then now we go into the funeral, uh, formal, uh, formally the funeral uh, that God gives the nation, northern kingdom of Israel, in advance. Uh, he says, uh, you want to know what your funeral is going to look like? You want to know what people are going to say at your funeral? You want to know what people are going to say about your season in human history as my people? Let me tell you what they will say uh, at, at your uh, funeral. Now, in, in any funeral, there's a section of the funeral that's known as eulogies, and, and it means to speak well of a person. And I have officiated many, many uh, funerals uh, through the years. And, uh, and no matter how difficult it might be, how uh, poorly spent a person's life might be, uh, typically some friends or family members can come up with one or two good things to say about uh, the person. And then most people have actually quite a bit uh, to say. But it is interesting, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, that people talk about it in one form or another, you know, and they'll ask, I wonder what people will say at my uh, funeral, and uh, maybe we don't want to know. Uh, but it, it certainly is a sobering kind of thing where, as the old saying goes, live so as to be missed, or live it at least so that people can give a eulogy to speak well of you upon your dying but here is God, as, as gracious and merciful as He is, as desirous of, of finding just one good thing about them that He could fashion into a eulogy for them, He can't find anything. And so He says, this is what, uh, uh, what will be stated uh, for you as your uh, 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 you know, kind of mark in human history. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks up 
rightly. And so, in the gates of the city was where the leaders of the city would gather. It is certainly where the prophets would come when they would prophesy to a city. And they would come and they would declare the word of the, of the Lord. They would rebuke a city if the city was uh, falling a, a, away from God. And here, uh, the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel had come to hate anyone that rebuked their sin. They certainly hate Amos, as we'll see next week. He's put under threat uh, to get out of town and to get out of town fast. And uh, it didn't work, but this is the condition that they were in. They didn't like their sin to be rebuked. And then they abhorred anyone who spoke about, uh, speaks uprightly. They abhorred uh, any honest man uh, who uh, 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 was honest about them because of their, uh, in exposing their unrighteous uh, lives. And so, uh, here is this, the truth being spoken, and, uh, and here they didn't like not only their sin being rebuked, but they didn't even like to acknowledge anymore that there was something called right and wrong. Something called righteousness and unrighteousness. Well, how postmodern of them. That anyone would stand up and say, no, this is right and this is wrong. And uh, in, in our nation, or in a, a workplace, or in an environment you find yourself in, uh, Thanksgiving coming up, uh, just dare to say to somebody uh, who isn't a Christian, and say, no, this is right, and that is wrong. And it's an absolute. It is a historical absolute. Well, they might uh, put your drumstick and your stuffing and your mashed potatoes in a to-go plate and send you out the door. So far we've gone from the idea that there are rights and wrongs. I mean, it's very, uh, a very strong indictment upon our, uh, our, uh, 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 upon our, our nation uh, as well. It just isn't put up with. And, and it's exactly how a person would be received ex- increasingly within our nation, whether on a national level or on a local uh, uh, school board. Uh, meeting. And so, imagine doing a eulogy for someone and saying, yeah, oh, Bob, he was wicked and crooked and hated just, he hated anybody that rebuked him for it. And, uh, he, and he certainly hated anybody that lived a righteous life and indicated that he could have lived one too. And that's kind of the eulogy that, uh, that, that, that was put down. The second thing he condemned about them in this eulogy, therefore, you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have uh, built houses of hewn uh, stone, you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant uh, vineyards, but you shall not drink wine uh, from them. And so, imagine being a poor person in that uh, culture and in that time in history. No social security, uh, no wealthy relatives, no inheritance, typically this kind of thing. And, uh, and just you, you work that day, you work that year to be able to eat that day and to eat for the coming year. Now, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think that, uh, and I know, I know that farming is not an easy occupation. There's tremendous risk that is taken in that, at least from my observations. There's so much you don't have control over. Uh, you don't have control over weather and pests and markets and and all these different kind of things. So, it's a pretty, it's a pretty risky venture as it is. 
Imagine being poor, taking on all of that risk, and then getting some semblance of a harvest, and then the rich people come in and they tax you out of what it is that you've netted in order to feed your family for the coming year. And not only the wealthy doing that to you, but doing it to you so they can build bigger palaces and have nicer furniture inside those palaces. One thing God hates from one end of the Bible to the other, and that is anyone who takes advantage of the poor. Anyone who takes advantage of the poor and the powerless. Uh, If any of us ever do that to somebody, and I speak to myself first and foremost, uh, it is something to be repented of immediately. His eye is especially upon it. And God says, you've done this to the poor. You've built your palaces, assembled your wealth in this way on the backs of these people. And yes, you've got these homes that are built of cut stone, and you've planted your vineyards and all. But what you've gotten from them, I will not allow you to enjoy it. I'll take it from you the same way that you took it from them. Uh, in this uh, judgment. For I know your manifold uh, transgressions and your mighty sins, ascribing, uh, afflicting rather, the just and taking bribes and diverting the poor from justice uh, at the gate. And so they had, again, their judicial system was all messed up and all uh, corrupted, and they had just used it as a means to uh, amass wealth to themselves and then also uh, to protect their uh, to protect their power and uh, and again using it in order to rob the poor not only through taxation but also in ripping them off and in when they would then protest over what a wrong that had been done to them by someone in power and then they had no chance at all of prevailing in the court system that is a miserable, terrible condition, and God uh, didn't like it. And then in verse 13, very, very contemporary, the condition of the nation had become uh, so bad in this regard, therefore the prudent, uh, the wise, they keep silent at that time, for it's an evil uh, time. And uh, so things became so corrupt and so evil that it became uh, dangerous for the righteous to speak out. And uh, one of the signs that a culture is in danger and is, is, is heading toward its last legs is when corruption becomes so great within the courts and then so great within the culture that the righteous have to think twice about opening their mouth and saying what is right and what is wrong. And I would venture to guess that all of us currently feel that pressure in the country that we live in uh, today. Do I speak up related to this? Because if I do, it will cost me this and this and this, and it feels like federal government, state government, other systems, uh, the, the employer, all of them will then rise up and come against me, even destroy my livelihood from making the stand. 
And it's so weighted in that way that now we are in a country where the righteous have to think twice about voicing our opinions when it should be the unrighteous who should be afraid of advancing their unrighteousness. And everything is turned upside down. And nothing can last uh, very long that way. I mean, you think about uh, some parts of, uh, of uh, I mean, I, you think about going, driving over to San Francisco or something and going to a museum or going to uh, wherever you might want to go, and uh, you got to wonder about the bumper stickers you might have on your car or the crucifix you might have ha- hanging from uh, your mirror that you might get keyed by somebody in, in the city. And these are the things that have entered into the thinking of the righteous that should never be the case. And yet, uh, 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 here we are. And then he says, uh, seek good and not evil. Imagine that. And why would he need to say that except they were seeking evil and not good? That you may live. Again, the invitation. And so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as uh, you have spoken. So the call, it's not too late. He said, hate evil and love good. So the Bible is talk. You know, we talk about the saying about um, hating the sin, uh, but loving the sinner. And uh, and here you have it: the hatred of evil. And this is something that uh, can really search our hearts in a, a culture where evil is so accessible to us as Christians, and so accessible to us in the privacy of our homes. And uh, and to, and so it challenges us. Do I really hate evil? Do I hate uh, what it does to God and, and, uh, and the affront that it is to Him? Do I hate what it does to myself? Do I hate what it does to other people? What it does to uh, my peers and those that, that sur- uh, surround me? And so He calls on them, calls on us to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Let your courtrooms, uh, and that was an ancient courtroom, let it be known for justice. And it may be that the Lord of hosts, God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant uh, of uh, Joseph. And then here, uh, God heads into this next section here. The result of His uh, chastening would be uh, a, a universal and an escapable kind of mourning. So you've got the obituary, you've got the autopsy, the cause of death, you've got the eulogy now that is be, has been given in the memorial service, and now here is the grief that, uh, that will come with the destruction uh, 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 and death of the northern kingdom. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, uh, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord uh, says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful uh, lamenters to wailing. Uh, In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, uh, says the Lord. And so there will be a mourning that will be in the cities. There will be a mourning that will be uh, in, uh, in the fields. He goes on and he uh, declares uh, a woe upon them. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord that they were looking forward to was the coming of Messiah. 
and um, they considered the fact that uh, it was a very prosperous time under Jeroboam II at this time in the northern kingdom of Israel. They had had a couple of uh, kind of minor military successes, and they looked at that military success. They looked at their wealth, and they said, we are, God is great with us in, in this. We're okay with God. And, uh, and so let the Messiah come. And they were in that, that kind of, a, of a excitement about the return of uh, uh, the coming of, of the Lord Himself and considered themselves fully uh, prepared for. But the Lord said, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man uh, fled from a lion, speaking about now uh, in, the, in the way that Amos, remember he's a fig picker and he's a sheep herder, so he's got these clever ways of, it's not clever, he's not being clever at all, it's just his life, it's his world, and he prophesies for God in that, that language. And so he talks about the attempt that Israel may make in order to escape the judgment that was coming, and he said it will be as though a man fled from a lion. So you got a guy going through the forest, and he sees a lion. What do you do when you see a lion? You run. And, uh, and then he runs from the lion, and then a bear meets him. Well, what do you do when uh, you meet a bear coming from the other direction? Well, you run for the house, uh, or, uh, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. So he runs from the lion, thinks, okay, I've made it. Then he sees the bear. Oh, no. And he runs from it. He gets into the house. I've made it. He leans his hand up against the wall to catch his breath, and a serpent bites him and kills him. It, and, the, and the whole point is, you can't escape me. Uh, you can't escape this judgment that is coming only by, only by repentance. It is not the day, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. It is, uh, is it not very dark and with no brightness? God is saying to them, you're looking forward to the coming of Messiah, and what you don't realize is that if He did come to you in your current condition, it would not be a good experience for you. Uh, it would be darkness and, uh, and, and judgment uh, as well. Don't hope in any uh, kind of, uh, of a miracle of any kind. And then he goes on to speak about how much he enjoyed their church services. He said, I hate, I despise your feast day, uh, the, the feast of uh, 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 Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. I do not savor. They, are, they bring me no uh, joy at all, your sacred assembly, your weekly meetings, your monthly meetings, your daily uh, meetings. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. The burnt offering was an offering of consecration. It was the one offering where the offering was completely burned upon the altar. And what it communicated on the part of the giver of the burnt offering was, I am offering my life completely to God for Him to use however He wants to use my life. Well, they were offering the offerings, but they weren't offering their lives. So it just became a, a religious activity. The grain offering was a fellowship offering with God. And so they're pretending through their offerings that I uh, prize fellowship with God. I consider myself to be fully consecrated uh, to God. And none of it had a basis in reality. God said, I will not accept those offerings, nor will I regard your fattened uh, peace offerings. It is interesting that God makes no mention of a sin offering here. 
Maybe they had ceased to make sin offerings, considering their military victories and their, and their great material wealth to be an indication that they really didn't have any sin. Nothing was uh, wrong with God. And it, and it is easy, especially the way that the Jews, uh, uh, the rabbis taught concerning uh, the Old Testament, and that was that material wealth was a symbol of spirituality. It was wrong, but that's what they taught. And so they didn't judge their spirituality on the basis of obeying God's Word, but on the basis of their wealth. And so uh, they might have very well looked at it and said, well, we really don't need to offer sin offerings. Where obviously God is uh, pleased with us. Look at how He's blessing us with all of this stuff. And God said, take away from me the noise of your songs. You won't even call it worship. (laughs) The noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. He wouldn't receive their worship. He considered it a, a racket and a noise because it had no attachment to their heart. And this is what he wanted. But let justice run down like water. Let justice in the courtroom, let justice in your individual lives, doing the right thing, situation by situation, decision by decision. Let that characterize you as a nation once again. That's the security of a nation, not its material wealth. And then, and righteousness like a mighty stream. And so he said, let uh, make righteous judgments, return that to characterize the nation, and then uh, my definition of, of right and wrong, and, and you'll be fine. That's the solution to the problem you find yourselves in. And then he confronted them with their long history of idolatry. He said, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of, uh, of Israel? You also carried um, uh, uh, Sikuth, your king, and Chayun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourself. It's terrible to make your own god, uh, because then you got to cart it around. And that, that's a, as if you didn't have enough troubles in life, now you got to carry your god around. And uh, therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is uh, the uh, is the Lord of hosts, and so uh, even when they came, uh, God mentions the the uh, idolatry that marked them even from the time that they uh, came out of the land of of Egypt. He mentions two uh, Sikoth and uh, 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 Chun, the pagan gods, Assyrian astral uh, gods, and uh, and uh, and and. and that, that they were worshiping, and God said, as, as He would later say to the, the southern kingdom of Judah, listen, you like, you like to worship um, the Assyrian gods? You think that's a, a, a great thing? You think that produces a great society and a great human being? I'll send you to Assyria. And you can worship them as up close as you want to worship them. You can worship them 24-7 if you want but I'll put you right in the middle of the culture that those two gods produce and the kind of human being that those two gods produce and see if you like it better than the life that you had when you were worshiping me. And it would be the cure for uh, what, what ailed them. It was, it was strong medicine. 
but they would only receive strong medicine at, at this point uh, in, in time. And so God said, you want to worship these gods? There comes a point, and, it's, and the same thing happens in our own individual lives. There just comes a point where He says, go worship them, but you won't worship them under my protection because you won't listen to my warnings about how serious this is and where it ends. And so then he says, I'll lift the protection from you, and then you go have at it. And of course, it would be uh, uh, the cure to uh, the folly of, of who and what they were worshiping instead of the Lord. And then in chapter 6, he uh, continues in this same uh, a message that he gives, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Uh, Zion speaking of uh, uh, Jerusalem and uh, who trust in Mount Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he condemns Jerusalem at this point in addition to the northern kingdom of Israel because these same sins were already starting to find root in the northern kingdom though it would be about a hundred years before they would then fall to the Babylonians for these same sins. Notable persons of the chief nation to whom the house uh, of uh, Israel uh, comes. He said, go over to Kalna and see. And from there go to Hamath uh, the great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or uh, is their territory greater than your territory? And so God tells them, uh, go take a field trip from your capitals. Your, all of your wealth, all of your government, all of your political leaders, all of your corruption is all concentrated in these two capitals. And what you need to do is get out of your capitals and learn from uh, history. And uh, uh, all of these nations that he talks about and says, just take a chariot ride and go check them out. They were all nations, just like the northern kingdom of Israel, that thought they were great, thought they were in- invincible, and uh, considered themselves to be you know, unassailable even by uh, God. And each of them were uh, beaten down and defeated either by the Assyrians or by uh, uh, Judah itself. And uh, their power, uh, though they were more powerful and of greater size than the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they still ended up uh, judged and, uh, and, and, uh, and badly uh, destroyed. Woe to you who, uh, who put afar off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come uh, near. And so they had uh, put their confidence in the fact that, oh, uh, yeah, well, if there is a God, uh, His judgment's uh, far off. Because look at our wealth, and look at our military victories, and look at this, and look at that. And uh, always that tendency to think that, yeah, God's judgment is coming. We see that in in the Bible at the end of the age. But it's not going to come now. I can play fast and loose with my relationship with God. God's not going to come in my generation. And and, uh, they knew they were ripe for judgment. And the reason that they didn't take God's uh, uh, call to to repent seriously is they thought, well, we're, we're not that bad yet, or he's not going to do it uh, this, uh, this soon. And then God begins to condemn them for uh, their pride. Woe to you, 
or rather in verse 4, the woe on you who lie on beds of ivory, that is, beds that were inlaid with ivory, talking about extraordinary uh, wealth. You stretch out on your couches. And uh, remember, the average person, the poor person, the laborer, is laboring from the moment he has light in the morning until the last light every night. He doesn't even own a couch, let alone having the ability to lounge on a couch all day, every day. And, uh, and all of this being done at the expense of the poor from, from the vantage point of God. You eat, uh, woe to those who uh, eat lambs from uh, the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. We think that uh, veal is a, a, a recent discovery. It's not. They were having raised veal uh, way back then, calves in the midst of the stall. And then they, who sing idly to the sounds of stringed instruments. And you invent for yourself musical instruments like David. You might remember that David... He was the uh, sweet psalmist of Israel, and he was involved in creating musical instruments. But when he created musical instruments, or musical instruments were created under his reign, it was for the purpose that these instruments would then be used to worship the Lord. This was something entirely different. This was instruments being invented and produced in order to uh, just amuse themselves uh, in their uh, debauchery. And uh, woe to you who drink wine from bowls. Now, if you ever go out to a restaurant and, uh, and you see at the table next to you that their, their, their wine is served in a bowl, uh, you know you've got a serious wine drinker at that table. There's one thing when somebody says, you get a little wine and they say, well, leave the bottle. This guy said, bring me a bowl. He's talking about drunkenness uh, and, uh, and, and spending their lives overeating and, 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 uh, and getting drunk. And then you anoint yourself with the best ointments, the most expensive ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. You have all of this wealth. You have all of this comfort. But even you can look at the fact that you are attaining this wealth and enjoying this wealth in the context of a nation that is going down the tubes because of what you're doing to it. And can't you see that that can't go on indefinitely? What you are doing to the nation is going to bring it down and bring the end of, of all of the things that you uh, worship now. And, uh, and God rebukes them for uh, not seeing this and not being grieved at what their luxury and their lifestyle, uh, the impact that it was having upon the nation as, as a whole. And therefore, they shall go now captives uh, as the first of the captives, uh, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. I think we talked about it last time, but when the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever historically, uh, when the, when, uh, the Romans uh, sacked Jerusalem or, uh, or, or any, uh, when Rome was sacked, uh, these people are, are not idiots out there waiting to sack a city. Uh, the soldiers were most often paid by the loot that they would get from the city. And it wasn't like they didn't know the neighborhoods. 
And so they're not going to go in if they're given a chance and say, yeah, let's storm the poorest neighborhoods within the city so we can get nothing. Uh, they're, they're bits of uh, pottery that they're eating their meals off of. No, they would hate, head straight to the wealthiest section of town. And then they would begin to loot there. And God says, all of this is, you're going to be the first of, of the captives. And the Lord God has sworn by Himself, the Lord of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. All of this is pride at its core. I, and I hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house after the destruction, uh, they shall uh, die. And when a relative of the dead with one who will uh, burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house. This is talking about whole-scale death. It's talking about bodies laying out in the open to such a degree that now disease is becoming a threat to anyone who's alive. They come then to bury uh, uh, who they can, come to the house of their family members or friends to see who survived and, and who can we help in terms of, of burying the dead. And he will say to one inside the house as he comes to help, are there any more with you? Did anybody else live besides you? And then someone will say, none, I'm the only survivor. And then the, one, uh, uh, then the one will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. And so it says, all right, there's only the two of us that are alive. Don't say anything about God. Because we have been away from Him and so far from Him for so long that we don't know what will offend Him or what will please Him, and He might smite the two of us uh, as well. That's how ignorant they had become as God's people in the world. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. The destruction would ultimately go through the entire city and the land. And then uh, in, the, in the way that uh, again, that Amos is, is uh, so clever in terms of how he uh, brings things up. He says, do horses run on rocks? Uh, I, I don't want to see it. Uh, and I don't want to be on the horse either. Uh, does one plow uh, uh, there on rocks with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall, into bitterness, and the fruit of righteousness into uh, wormwood into bitterness. And so uh, Amos is saying, anyone with any brains, anyone with any sense, doesn't ride a horse on a slippery rock, uh, doesn't try to plow a rock. Uh, that's just like, wow, how simple is that? Can't any thinking person understand that? And yet, the, the point that he makes here is, uh, is a call, uh, call telling them, uh, and, and can, uh, can the nation turn away from justice and turn away from righteousness and still be right with God? Any thinking person can recognize that that can't be the case. It doesn't go uh, together, and yet they were uh, in, engaged in this, thinking that they could continue in, in, in justice, continue in unrighteousness, and, and never end up 
uh, being judged. And you who rejoice over uh, Lodabar, who say, uh, we have, not, uh, have we not taken Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? And so uh, Amos deliberately here, uh, they're talking, uh, Amos anticipates their uh, uh, defense of, of the quality of their nation, the health of their nation. We just won two military victories against these uh, two groups of people. How can you say that we're not uh, strong and, and uh, militarily uh, secure? But God says those, uh, those uh, defeats of those other nations, uh, they were, those other nations were insignificant. And Amos, in the in the passage, he deliberately mispronounced the name uh, of one of the captured uh, towns, Lodabar, and uh, so that it came out in the Hebrew, uh, Lodabar, which means nothing. So they say, we, we conquered Lodabar. And God said, no, you conquered Lodabar. <laughs> you conquered nothing uh, in, in terms of, of, of any kind of uh, significance. And so he, he stressed the name of the other city, uh, Karnaim. Uh, it, it literally means uh, horns, and so symbolizing the strength of, of the bull. And Amos scoffed at the, uh, uh, at, at the fact that they were rejoicing over what was really uh, nothing. And what they didn't realize is that, uh, and again, how blind we can become when we uh, turn away from the Word of God the mirror of the Word. And, and when they, they respond in this way, rejoicing over their military victories, they don't even get it yet that their problem is not with the surrounding nations. Their problem is with God. And they still think it's about the surrounding nations. They can't think any bigger uh, than, uh, than uh, 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 any of that. And so, uh, uh, here this, this failure to see, it wouldn't matter if you did defeat these nations. It wouldn't matter if you defeated Assyria and were still on the wrong side of God. That's the issue. And, and, and his continual call upon their lives to, uh, uh, um, uh, to turn and to repent. All of these other victories, they were just little skirmishes. And God says, you're all excited about a couple of skirmishes, but you want to take me on? And that's a war. And you're not prepared uh, to win that battle and that fight. And nobody is. And so we'll stop there uh, this evening and uh, pick things up and look to finish it, uh, finish uh, Amos next week. And so here we are in the midst of a, a world. We live in a, a nation that is uh, marked in an ever-increasing measure by the same kind of things that marked the northern kingdom of Israel. And, um, and all of it is simply an indication that the whole world that we live in is headed for its Assyrian judgment. And it's called the Great Tribulation, in which uh, God takes on a Christ-rejecting world living in rebellion with Him. The world fails to understand we are, uh, we are renters here. We don't own the United States of America. Canada doesn't own Canada. These are things that we agree upon as people. From the vantage point of heaven, this all belongs to Him. God has the title deed to the earth. We don't have the title deed to the earth. 
And, and, and so this, this idea of, uh, but, but the world as a whole moving toward this, this judgment on a worldwide scale, on a par with what we're talking about the Assyrians here and, and uh, the northern kingdom of, of Israel. I think about how wonderful it is to live as we see these things, as we notice these things growing within our culture, but for ourselves as we live lives of justice and righteousness, of just simply doing the right thing, circumstance by circumstance in our lives, making the right judgment or decision, decision by decision, the peace that is in our lives individually, even while the, while the world grows more and more insane and, and more and more uh, dangerous as it heads for its collective judgment one day. And so as the old saying goes, the darker uh, things get, the brighter the light shines. And that's the truth of that. So we just need to keep shining where it is that God has, has placed us, continue to live this life. Don't be sucked into the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel as it's been exposed uh, tonight, but to live the life like Christ, and then it's up to God to make something significant of our lives in terms of influence uh, within uh, this uh, world. If you're backslidden tonight, tonight is the night that you want to turn and take God up on His call to uh, have Him. Uh, he doesn't want to spank you uh, or me. doesn't want to chasten us. And so to turn back to uh, Him. I think that, you know, as we watch things, I watch the news. I haven't given it up yet. And, um, but, uh, you know, we're all aware of of the fact that the direction of the world, the direction of our country is very much like what, what we read here. But then to always look behind the headlines to see what it is that God is doing and how prophecy is being fulfilled uh, right before our eyes in the hardship of what we find ourselves in the middle of. And, um, and just a little kind of add-on tag related to what we're looking at tonight. Uh, one of these days... Uh, you and I will wake up one morning. I, I assume we'll find out in the morning. But we're going to wake up one morning and turn on the news or what, however you get your news, and we're going to see that Israel has hit the nuclear reactors in Iran. They have to do it. They cannot let that become a nuclear nation and leave their children and their grandchildren to become the victims of a decision the hard decision that they failed to make. And that all of that has the potential then to move into Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you're not familiar with that, the great battle that occurs, the invasion of Israel that occurs at that time with the allies, uh, and, and all of that is immediately before or immediately after the rapture uh, of the church, but it's all sitting there. And you look at this debacle that was our a retreat out of uh, Af Afghanistan. I'm not talking about leaving Afghanistan. People had different opinions about that, but how we left Afghanistan and to leave uh, our own citizens, to leave innocent people that helped us to be slaughtered uh, upon our, our leaving, to leave people of other nations to be slaughtered behind those borders. I mean, I would not do that to another person and, and, and it reflects upon us as Americans. This was a shameful, shameful 
event that happened in our history. And it, and it shifted the tectonic plates in terms of, of world power. And immediately you look at Israel, and Israel is, is saying behind the scenes, when we hit Iran, we are not going to notify the United States of America. They're in decline. They can't be trusted. We don't need them. And we don't want them to tell us no. It was fascinating while I'm so troubled about how this reflects upon us as people in the world and as a nation in the world. It's such an embarrassment. And while I'm troubled with all of that, and I should be troubled with all of that, what happened a few days after that mess when we left uh, French and Germans and Britons uh, and, and all of their people caught in, uh, left in Afghanistan, uh, President Macron in France got up and he said publicly, I mean publicly, he said, we cannot trust the United States of America to defend us any longer. We need a European Union army. And then the head of the EU in Brussels then echoed the next day the very same thing. We need to develop a European Union military. And we all know that as we look at, at, the, at the, the prophetic Scriptures, that the Antichrist will come on the scene during the tribulation period, and he will use a, a military. He will have a military available to him out of the old Roman Empire, Europe. And here it is all developing right before our eyes. And so these things that trouble us on one level, to notice and see how Everything is marching forward exactly as God has said that it would. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer and uh, in a closing song. And Father, we can't make decisions for um, the President or for our Congress or our Senate or our Governor or the leaders of the world or uh, people in power uh, everywhere. We can only decide uh, how we're going to live for You in the place that You have placed us. And we pray that You would give us grace, that You would give us boldness, that You would give us courage to stand for You in this hour in which anyone that even believes in a definition of right and wrong, let alone articulates it, is being bullied and being intimidated. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to decision by decision within our life for these to be righteous judgments that come from our life. We pray that justice would prevail, that we would do the right thing uh, in each opportunity that You give to us and that all of this would then just be a light that shines to Your glory. Give us the power to do what You've called us to do at this moment in human history, and then we trust You to make Your calling on our lives and where You have placed us powerful for Your glory. Thank You, Lord, that we are not, in, as Your people, not in this place about what we're reading about here tonight. We thank You for the peace that is ours, the joy uh, that is uniquely ours as we just simply walk with You and talk with You in the midst of this 
uh, ever uh, darkening environment that we find ourselves in. Again, we close our time in your word the way that we began. Thank you for the privilege of being your children in knowing you in the midst of all of this. And we thank you in the name of the one who made it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucy, would you close us?